And if you would, please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Yes, I said the book of Revelation. But don't worry. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Okay, if everybody's there, I'll go ahead and read. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Well, Father, Lord, our desire for Heritage Grace is that we would be a church who is given ears to hear what the Spirit says. And Father, our desire for Heritage Grace, Lord, is that our church would be those who overcome, who would be there with you on that day in glory. And so, Father, I pray that you would um, use your word to this ends. Use your word even today, Lord. Bless our time. Bless hearer and speaker alike, Lord, that we may be edified and built up and encouraged in this most holy faith by your word. And so please, through your spirit, Lord, do this work for us. Be gracious to your church today. I pray these things in the name of your glorious Son. Amen. Amen. Well, as all of you are aware, today is our three-year anniversary of Heritage Grace Community Church. And so in celebration of that, I, I just wanted to take this opportunity and take this time uh, for this message um, for us to pause and to be thankful for everything that God has done for our church. And um, my prayer is that as we look at these texts today and as we're encouraged that uh, we won't just seemingly be thankful, but that we would even be able to celebrate today what God has done for Heritage Grace. Uh, in commemoration of this day, I want us to look at some texts. We're going to look at some texts that will... Um, that I hope will encourage us by confirming to us that Heritage Grace is in fact walking in accordance with the Word of God. And I want us to be encouraged by that, and I want us to look at some other texts as well that might remind us of what will carry Heritage Grace Community Church into the future. Okay, so I didn't read um, Revelation chapter 3 because I'm going to do an exposition per se of that text um, but I thought it was a very fitting parallel um, to what I do want us to look at today. Um, as most of you are, I, I think, hopefully aware of, that call that Jesus is making there in Revelation chapter 3, um, this call that he makes as he stands at the door and knocks, is not a, a personal invitation um, for somebody to allow Jesus to come into their heart. Um, actually, in context there, this is a call, as you see at the very end of verse 22 there, it's a call to the churches. It's a call originally to the churches of Asia, uh, the churches that originally existed at the time of John's writing this book, but certainly by implication, 
Um, this call that Jesus is making to the churches there is a, is a call to the churches throughout church history. And this is a call um, that Jesus is holding out the graces to his bride that his bride needs to take a hold of so that the fellowship will be right and good between Christ and his bride. If you're familiar with the first three chapters of Revelation, you know that, that these graces that Jesus is holding out to the people, to the churches, are graces that will carry them through their sin, they're graces that will carry them through their persecutions, through false teachings, and in the end will bring them ultimate perseverance and eternal reward. This is the same call that I want our church to take a hold of as we celebrate three years of service to the Lord. And we look forward now um, to as many years as the Lord might be pleased to give Heritage Grace. I think we can all agree that we want our local church here um, to be like the purified and washed church of Ephesians chapter 5, that church that's presented um, to the Savior without spot or wrinkle, that church who's found to be holy and blameless. We want Heritage Grace to be found to be mature and established at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ on that day. Um, in Revelation chapter 3, uh, we see that there's a couple of churches out of the seven, Smyrna and Philadelphia, they're churches that the Lord has no rebuke for them, nothing but praise and boasting for those churches. And I want our church to be found um, in the same situation with nothing but boasting from our Savior. Now, as you can imagine, um, there are many texts that we could look at um, as examples of what healthy churches look like, examples of what God intends and purposes for His church. Um, in thinking and considering just what, what text I wanted us to turn to today and what did I want to lay out for us of what a, a mature and healthy church looks like, um, I certainly did reference, um, most of you are probably familiar with Mark Dever's work, his Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Um, I did look at that, but in fear of what uh, Pastor Emilio might do to me if I had a nine-point sermon, um, I instead just came up with three more um, general headings that I think would certainly um, encompass um, very generally at least, what a healthy church looks like, what the scriptures um, give us a picture of is what is a healthy church. And I think the scriptures give us a picture of a church, a church that we would all want to be members of, a church that we would all want to be um, servants in and dedicated to. The biblical church is a church that excels in unity, it excels in direction, and it concentrates and focuses on the same subjects and goals. That's what we see as being a healthy church in the New Testament. And so it's these subjects and these goals that I'm actually going to make the, the points for the message in the sermon today. Now, none of these points will surprise you. Um, none of these texts that we're going to look at would be considered obscure um, because the fundamentals of a healthy church, I think we can see these on the very surface of the New Testament especially, but they're points that need to be returned to every so often lest we um, stray away from them. And so today we're going to return to these, um, what, are, what are very evident points for a, a God-honoring local church. So the points of a God-honoring local church that we'll look at today is first and foremost, the gospel of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Secondly, we're going to look at the means of grace that God has given to his church by which his church is edified and built up. And then lastly, for the third point, we're actually going to look at the need to persevere in these first two points, the need to seek after unity in those first two points. And together, I think we'll get a pretty good picture of what a healthy church is. We can rejoice over the points where Heritage Grace um, uh, meets that standard, and we can strive to grow in every one of these things. So let's first look at the first point here, the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel-centered church is a Christ-centered church. And as soon as I typed that up in my, my document, I, I had to stop and, and almost um, answer a more fundamental question. Because in desiring to be a gospel-centered church or a Christ-centered church, it, it does beg a more fundamental and basic question. And that is, how do we even know the gospel? How do we even know who Jesus Christ is? And of course, the answer is, those things are found in the very word of God. And so the Bible is given to the church as the foundational way in which the church knows truth, the way the church knows the gospel, the way the church knows who the Savior is and how they are to be saved. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, prayed to the Father for his church and said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus' prayer for us, for his people, was that we would be sanctified through the word of God, which is truth. And so I wanted to, to answer another question, really, is, is this. How can faithful churches fulfill this calling to sanctify their people in the word of God? How can churches do this? How should they do this? And so let me give you my primary response to that. The primary way that a faithful church can fulfill this calling to sanctify the people in the word is through verse-by-verse -verse expositional preaching, primarily. And yes, it's ironic that I'm not doing that today. I'm fully aware um, of that. But as I'm going to point out, I think there are other ways that we can uh, additionally benefit from the word of God. But why primarily verse-by-verse -verse exposition? Why, why as opposed to uh, maybe topical sermons or um, systematic uh, studies or, or broad book overviews, why give verse-by-verse -verse exposition to the, to the worship of God's uh, people? I think the answer to that is because of the very form that the Spirit of God moved the biblical authors to write their letters and books in. The books of the Bible and the letters of the Bible are just that. They're books and letters. And books and letters are communicating long, drawn-out arguments and are giving long, extended teachings. And just as with every other book or every other letter, they're meant to be read from beginning to end, hence the verse by verse. And But because the books and because the letters of our Bible are not just any books or any letters, because they are the very words of God, these books and these letters are to be read verse by verse very, very carefully. Hence the exposition and exegesis. This is how God intended them to be studied, and so it benefits the church most to study them in this fashion as they were written. 
Now, as I said, I think that there are, of course, um, other ways that we can benefit from the Bible's teaching as well. Um, some other ways that I think are even necessary. Um, I mentioned some. There's, you can study the Word of God through book surveys or maybe even broad overviews of the Bible. And why might those, as I said, even be necessary? Maybe just an example. Let's say a, a, a church is planted, a brand new church is planted, and that church um, is, is committed to doing nothing but what we, re, what we refer to as verse-by-verse expositional preaching. And maybe they start out with the book of Romans, for instance. Well, maybe a, a problem that they might come across is that that church would not actually reach the application section of the book of Romans um, for several years. And so you can see why maybe that might need to be supplemented by another way of studying the Word of God, maybe through book surveys or broader overviews to supplement um, the verse-by-verse preaching of the Word of God. Um, I listed here topical sermons, just like we have today, a topical sermon just to encourage us in, in making sure that our church is, is foundationally biblical and God-honoring. Um, special occasions can call, certainly, for a topical message. Uh, maybe like, just like we had the conference, sometimes there's going to be pressing issues Um, timely matters and issues that press in on the church that may require for um, a topical sermon, and that's, that's, that's good and that's right. And we have systematic biblical theology studies, just like we're doing in Sunday school, studying systematic topics throughout the Word of God. But I can't mention biblical theology without mentioning the importance of having a correct uh, hermeneutic for the studying of the Word of God, no matter how you're studying it. Um, it's of the, the, the utmost importance to have a correct interpretive methodology for how you're studying the Bible and, and praise the Lord that God in His grace has revealed to us His hermeneutic. And just as we studied in Sunday school, we have a Christocentric hermeneutic for the Word of God that Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ, is what all of the Bible is about. Um, I know the question was asked in Sunday school today is, are all of the promises um, of God, are all of the covenants of God um, having their, their end and purpose in, in Christ? And um, I have 2 Corinthians 1.20 already in my notes, which says, for as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes and are amen. That directly answers, I think, the question that all of the promises, all of the Old Covenant promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And so once you have um, a church that I hate to say goes with that, it should go without saying, a church full of regenerate members who are all under the lordship of Christ, submitted to his word, a word that is in fact Christ-centered, gospel-centered, praise the Lord as we have here to Heritage Grace, Um, I want us to turn now to that word, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 28 um, to refresh our memories of what the Lord himself tells us his church is to be about. Matthew chapter 28. I, I told you that none of these passages would be obscure. Matthew 28 certainly is not an obscure passage, but I think very helpful for what um, we want to look at today. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, a text that is rightly Uh, become known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18. It says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so I turn us to this text because I first want to consider uh, the outward call. The outward call, the outward work of the Great Commission. That is uh, what I'm referring to, the call of the church to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations. And that call is indeed a Great Commission. And but as we're aware, um, what to us may seem uh, to be seemingly impossible, a seemingly impossible feat, the text tells us here that this feat is made possible through the Lord's help, who has all authority in heaven on earth. And it's the same Lord who promises to be with us in this work even to the end of the age. And it's the same Lord who will be sovereignly watching over his people as they spread the message of his saving cross work. We all know Matthew 28 for this aspect of, of the gospel work that Christ has given to his church. It's a very exciting um, aspect of gospel work. It, it definitely preaches well. But let's look at the inward call now of this great commission because that's also there in the text. Let me just pick up again in verse 19. It said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's what Jesus Christ calls his, his followers to do, is to, is to teach the baptized converts to obey all that he has commanded. And brothers and sisters, that is another huge task. That is certainly part of the great commission. Now, I did want to um, point out one thing about that because I think it's very important to recognize that what Jesus is prescribing to his church to do and to fulfill is not legalism. It's not legalism. Legalism is the teaching that you can gain your right standing, gain your justification before God by keeping his laws and his rules well enough. Um, that's not at all what, what Jesus is prescribing here. And I, know, and I know in our gospel presentations, as we do this outward call of the gospel, that, that point must be crystal clear, that justification, as we saw in Sunday school, is by faith alone. Um, but one thing that converts as we preach to them and as converts that come into the church, one thing that they must know is that this Christ Jesus, who is their Savior, is not only a Savior, he's also the Lord Christ Jesus the Lord is the Lord of all creation, and he is to be glorified through obedience in everything that he says. And I know that a, a church will only be um, lukewarm if, it, if its members don't embrace this reality that Christ Jesus is not just Savior, but Lord. I thought about, um, and you can think about just... Um, the time during Jesus's earthly ministry as he was here on this earth walking around with us. And, and I thought about the fact that God the Father didn't manifest himself 
um, distinctly from the Son too many times during Jesus' ministry. But I thought of the few times that he did and the few times that he spoke. What he said was things like, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Right? God the Father established, established the Lordship of Christ in the words that he did say and when he did distinctly speak um, while Jesus was here on the earth. Um, I think this is relevant to our gospel ministry, even, even part of the outward call, in that, uh, brothers and sisters, we should not be content with converts, um, but that we should be willing to devote our lives to those whom we evangelize um, through teaching and helping them to obey everything that the Lord has commanded. I think we can all um, have a part in that as people come into the church and, and we should want for them to grow I think certainly the elders and the teachers of the church have a, a primary responsibility in carrying out this commission of teaching them to obey all that he has commanded, but we must all be um, unified in at least that, that we want people who are converted to be conformed to the image of Christ, and we need to do that work. I think that churches that, are, that allow for the carnal Christianity are, are being directly disobedient to Christ's command. Churches that allow people to continue in sin. They, and those people who allow that don't in fact love their people. They don't have a, a biblical love because God's perfect salvific love for people is that they will be conformed to the image of Christ. And if that's God's desire for, for his people, our desire should be the same. And we should work towards that end that people would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so first and foremost... Um, as we're all aware, a church is to be gospel-centered, it's to be Christ-centered, and it's to be based on the Word of God. And so secondly, I want us to look here at, at where does the church go from here? What, is, what else does the church continue to do in order to, glow, uh, to grow and to flourish? And so in that, on that point, I want us to look now at the means of grace. The means of grace, which is more simply stated, just the graces. What graces has God given to his church by which we can, we can grow and be um, edified? In desiring to become a God-honoring, sanctified, and mature church, there are no hidden secrets. There are no mysteries as to how we're to achieve this goal. The Bible is very clear on how we as a church can accomplish the object objective um, the New Testament gives us both prescriptive and descriptive teachings on how the church is to function in a way that will glorify God and how the church will receive the blessings of God. Prescriptively, God has given us very straightforward didactic, didactic instructions in the New Testament epistles and specifically the pastoral epistles. Um, these are the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to um, some pastors, Timothy and Titus, in those, in those letters that provides direct teachings on how the church is to be ordered and how God wants his church to be run. And Paul there gives specific instructions on how the church is to be governed, who, how the leadership is to be structured, how um, elders and deacons are to be um, placed into each church. Uh, Paul also describes the roles of men and women and how they're to function in the church. He tells us how to deal with sin and how to deal with false teachings in the church. Paul even gets into the very details of finances, explaining who the church is to support and take care of financially, whether it be the, the teaching elders or, or widows. But brothers and sisters, it's, it's so good to know that God has not left his church in the dark. 
But he has, he has told us straightforwardly how we're to function in a way that he desires, in a way that glorifies him. And we also have in the Word of God, in the New Testament, through the Gospels and through the historical accounts of the early church in the book of Acts, um, these books also describe for us uh, descriptive instructions of how the first century church functioned and how it functioned in a way that glorified God. And so um, to look at one text where the Word of God does this for us, go ahead and turn in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 in 42, because here we get um, that blessed description of, of the earliest days of the church, and it's a descriptive um, account that we are certainly um, to imitate and to seek after. And I am fully aware that um, I have already preached an entire sermon about a year and a half ago on this uh, verse 42 in, in the surrounding context, but it's, it's just such a classic text. It's such an important text um, where all of these foundational graces that God gives his church are right here in one verse. So you don't have to, to chase me around throughout the Bible today to see these. They're all right here in one verse. And uh, so let's look at those and, and, and be encouraged by them. Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse 41 says, So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so we're just going to quickly look at these, uh, these graces that the church was partaking in and being edified by. And let's look at the first one. I think it's listed um, certainly for importance and, and primacy. The first of these graces what that is that they were giving themselves over to was the apostles' teaching the apostles' teaching. And so I just asked myself the question, how can we likewise ensure um, that we are being taught by the apostles? How can we make sure that our church is apostolic in that sense? Um, how do we know exactly what the apostles of Jesus taught so that we can likewise give ourselves over to the apostles' teaching? Well, hopefully you do know the answer to that. It's simply that the Bible, specifically the New Testament, is what God has left for us to know the apostles' teaching. There is nowhere else to look uh, to find the teachings of the apostles. There is no other transmission of apostolic tradition outside of the New Testament by which you're going to gain the knowledge of Christ's teachings to his apostles. It's very interesting to note, uh, and, and I've heard Dr. Kruger, uh, Dr. Kruger say it, and, and it's interesting to me and helpful to note that apart from maybe one exception, uh, depending on how you date uh, Clement of Rome's letter to the church in Corinth, uh, maybe apart from that one exception, the only, the only first century Christian documents that have even survived the passage of time are the 27 books that we have in our New Testament. I think that says a lot as to um, what God was, was doing there and preserving only these. God's only preserved these, leaving no question for us as to what he wants his church to have. Um, and even in the book, even in uh, Clement of Rome's letter to the Corinthians, he's, he's not in any sense claiming that that's apostolic or, or uh, canonical. He's pointing people back, even in that very letter, to what the, what the apostles had to teach. And so God, I think, has made it very clear for us 
as to what we need to turn to and what we need to look for um, to have the apostolic tradition. And it's the Bible. It's specifically the New Testament in that sense. And so once again, here we are again, um, back at the only way that we can know God's will for the church, and that's the Word of God. That's studying the Bible. That's the only way that we can know that we're even properly carrying out any of the other means of grace and worshiping God and serving Him correctly. And praise the Lord, brothers and sisters, that devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching is, is what heritage grace excels in. And so I praise the Lord for that um, because that is primary. Let's look second at, at fellowship. They were continually develop, uh, uh, devoting themselves to fellowship. Um, the BDAG, which is just simply uh, the, the most respected Greek lexicon or dictionary, it expounds upon the meaning of, of koinonia here, uh, the meaning of it in Acts 2.42. It says this. It says koinonia, or this fellowship means a close association involving mutual interests and sharing. A close association involving mutual interests and sharing. Now, what was the mutual interest of the early church? What did they all have in common? Well, it was Christ. It was being saved by Jesus Christ. They all gathered around the apostles' teaching. The text just told us, and what did the apostles teach? Well, the apostle Paul summed up all of his teaching into one word in Colossians 1.28. He said, we proclaim him. That's what they were teaching, and that's what the church came together for, was to hear of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ was the basis of the early church's fellowship. That's what it was all about. Christ was the common denominator, and brothers and sisters, that's why we're all sitting here in one room together is because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And so we have fellowship just as they did in the early church. We partake in the same grace uh, that the early church um, took part in. Now, I can't move on here from Luke's mentioning of this fellowship that the early church enjoyed without reminding us of the genuineness and the depths of the fellowship that they actually had because the early church's, uh, church's fellowship was not surface level. It was a deep fellowship in Christ. Um, their fellowship went beyond um, smiles and handshakes on Sunday afternoons. Uh, their fellowship was so real that what we see here in the very text that we're looking at, we see them going to the furthest links to serve and to love one another. And so let's just read two verses that that will bring this home for us. Look at verses 44 and 45. It says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. That is an amazing example of true fellowship amongst believers. It's a fellowship that I think we can all be very convicted of. It's a fellowship that I think that um, we can all strive towards, of being willing to sacrifice our very goods for the good of the brethren. And just in light of last week's um, conference and, and just the subject of the, the pressing homosexual movement, um, brothers and sisters, I don't know how long it will be, will be before we might be in the same predicament, the same situation that these brothers and sisters were in as they were being persecuted and ostracized and we're in need of actual basic needs. 
And um, we may, brothers and sisters, really, really need each other soon. And so my prayer is that we would be willing to share in this kind of fellowship when that time comes and if, if that's the Lord's will. But as for now, um, we have the privilege of participating in the means of grace and peace and in comfort. And so let's look at the next one that we certainly get to enjoy in peace and comfort now, the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread is one of the, the means of grace laid out here. And I just thought... Um, what a perfect day for us to consider this aspect of, of the blessed church as we've already had the opportunity to break bread together in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. I think the Lord's Supper, Supper is certainly the highest form of fellowshipping around the breaking of bread, but today we also will likewise have uh, fellowship through the means of grace in the potluck. The potluck, it's in the Greek text, you have to Take my word for that. Um, but although the Lord's Supper is the highest form of communion, when it comes to breaking the bread, I don't want us to underestimate the value of, of the communion that occurs when we have a very normal meal together. In biblical times, um, and even in many cultures still today, the breaking of bread is a very intimate, a very dear time uh, of fellowship. And so I don't want us to count... Uh, our, our times, our meals together as a, as a light thing. Um, and as far as thinking about these graces that the early church was involved in and just ways that we can, can grow in them and pursue them, I think this is certainly one that we can, that we can pursue and grow in. And that's uh, breaking the bread with others. And that's, that's a very simple thing to pursue, I think. Have brothers and sisters over to your house. Take brothers and sisters out um, for meals. Um, these graces are not listed here. They are not insignificant to God. These are the means of grace that God has actually given to his church. So I can tell you from experience, as if you invite somebody over to dinner, um, it is not insignificant to them. It is a blessing to them. It is encouraging to them. They will be blessed and you will be blessed for having them. So um, pursue that. Um, pursue all of these uh, graces diligently and continue to grow in them. Let's look at the last one. The last grace listed here in Acts 2.42, uh, last but certainly not least, um, Dr. Luke inclu includes the fact here that the early church was a praying church. The early church was a praying church, and the early church's uh, prayers were certainly prayers to be admired, prayers to be um, sought after and taught by. And we're actually going to read one of them. Just Probably just turn the page in your Bible, maybe two pages, to Acts chapter 4. I actually want us to read this, this prayer beginning at verse 24, um, this example here of the church's prayer. It seems like we turn to this prayer quite often for many different reasons, um, all good reasons, but I'm going to read this whole prayer because it is so instructive as to a, a model prayer in a sense of, of prayers that we could seek after and to grow in this grace. Let me just begin reading in verse 24, Acts chapter 4. Verse 24, it says, And when they heard this, um, that, that's just referring to the context where Peter and John had just been uh, let out of jail. They had stirred up the crowds for doing a miracle. And, and when the church heard this, um, it says that they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them 
who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through your name or through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Brothers and sisters, that's a prayer. That's a prayer. If you just, I'm sure you were noticing throughout that prayer, but there's so many right things about this prayer, so many things that we can model our prayers after. And this prayer had a very high, a very proper view and confession of who the God of heaven and earth is. In this prayer, if you have your NASBs, you'll notice that um, there's quotations from the very scriptures themselves in the very prayer itself. The prayer was very Christ-centered, very gospel-centered, and I think the reason we turn to it most often is because it is a very theologically rich prayer. Um, when I read the prayers of the early church and when I read prayers like this, um, I find myself wanting to say to the Lord the very same thing that Jesus' Jesus's disciples said to him in Luke 11, 1. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And so when we read a prayer like this following that request of Jesus, it seems as though the Lord answered their prayer. The Lord answered their request to teach them to pray. And they came out with prayers like this. Um, I just wanted to say that I'm so glad, uh, brothers and sisters, that Heritage Graces Friday night prayer times have persevered. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad for that, and I know the Lord uses that. Um, I wanted to thank everybody who hosts those prayer meetings, everyone that makes it out to those prayer meetings. And this actually pressed uh, the significance of these prayer meetings, really pressed home to me this Friday night as it just seemed like there were so many things that we were being thankful for, that prayers that the Lord had answered, ways that the Lord was moving in, in people's lives as a result of prayers that we had prayed Friday nights before that. And so it was really a blessing this Friday night to, to gather for those. So I just want to, again, encourage everybody in these graces of, of, of prayer as we gather as a church to pray, um, pursue those things um, as much as humanly possible because um, the church is blessed through them. Uh, let's move on to the last point now, uh, the last point of the message, actually, uh, because we've seen how the graces that God has given to his church to us are, are quite obvious to us. And I think we'd all agree that, that these are good and helpful graces for the church to grow. But my third point today is, is this, that we must not forget um, that in order to continue as a church to receive the blessings of God, we must maintain a unity of mind, a unity of effort amongst the brethren in pursuing um, the graces and pursuing the, the focuses that God has given to his church. We must pursue unity in these things. 
to live out all of these graces that we've looked at, um, these graces that God has given us, requires faithfulness of the brethren. Faithfulness to not only attend church gatherings, but to also serve, to also participate in them. Um, even in that very text that we looked at in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says they were continually devoting themselves to these things. Well, the they is certainly every member of that church. They were all devoting themselves continually to these things. Um, the church had become those early believers' lives. The church and the graces therein were not just a small aspect of their lives that they participated in when their normal busy lives had um, time for it. The church had actually become their family. The church as a body um, grows uh, and matures only so much as the individuals in that body grow and mature. This is a work that we all must be willing to persevere in and, and work at. Um, Paul, in several of his letters, um, actually uses the illustration of the church being a body. He describes it as, as being an actual, like a human body. Um, Paul uses this analogy to paint a picture for us of, of how the church is to function rightly as a, as a unified, self-sustaining organism. And it's because the Apostle Paul uses this, um, this body illustration, and as I studied, he used it more than I even remembered or thought um, he uses it so often, I thought it would be appropriate for us just to lay before us Paul's vision of the church functioning as a body in perfect unity. And so let's just look at um, just a couple of those instances. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where here Paul um, uses this illustration for the church. Here in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 12, um, the Apostle Paul is really uh, making the very similar point that he did in Romans chapter 12, as there he also uses the illustration of the body. Um, but let me just read a section of that, just a portion of that, because really the whole chapter almost is devoted to Paul's lengthy discussion of the church as a body. But let's just read verses 14 through 18. It says, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear hears, um, and it, or if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And it's because if the whole body were an eye, uh, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, then where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he has desired. And if you drop down to verse 25, he tells us the purpose of this, why God has orchestrated a body like this. In verse 25, he says, So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And so a part of our, our ever-growing maturing in unity will come from recognizing and honoring the gifts of those who might excel in different aspects of the church than what we are called to do. 
I know it's, I'm sure it's a problem in every church and, and, and maybe with all of us is that we all have a tendency to, to think that whatever our particular callings or whatever it is, whatever particular um, gifts that we have, that those are the more significant gifts in the church. And, and sadly, some people even think conversely that maybe their gifts and their service in the church of God um, actually doesn't really matter that much. But Paul's um, giving these examples um, really to show that God has sovereignly orchestrated all of the church and all of the gifts and all of the body. And, and the church cannot function um, without any of these gifts and without any of these things. And so we need to consciously um, build up and, and, and um, support everyone who serves in the local church and remind them of even texts like this. Um, uh, maybe, um, likewise, let me, let me look at uh, one last text um, which one did I have next? What was it? Romans 12. It's 1 Corinthians 12. Ah, forgive me, Pastor Mina. How can I forget Ephesians chapter 4? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, that's right. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Let's look where the Apostle Paul continues in describing um, this body illustration, how the church is a unified body. Um, all of the members are, are sovereignly given their, their gifts and their, um, their, their works in the church by God, and they're all to be honored. Um, but let me just read this text, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love." In love. Now, what I wanted us to turn here uh, for is that you might notice the means by which the body is building itself up here, and that is in love. In love. All of your work, all of your service in the church is to be done out of love. Love, first and foremost, of course, to Christ who is the head, but also love for the other members of the body. Um, just as Pastor Emilio explained to us last week in that conference mes message that he did on the love of God, um, love is an aspect of God's very being, and so too for the Christian, love should be um, a, a permeating aspect of our being as well. And just as he showed us that God's love is covenantal, so too is our love to be covenantal for one another. And, and I just wanted to say this to us, especially to all of the members of our church, um, as you look around the church today, as, as you look around at the brothers and sisters here, um, as we fellowship and, and as we continue to, to eat together, I thought it would be a perfect time for you to renew um, your covenant in your heart, renew your covenant to love and to serve the other members of Heritage Grace, and to know that in so doing, you are serving and you are loving Christ himself. Um, so take that opportunity to do that and just renew your love for the body of Christ today.
Um, to bring all this to a close, just let us be encouraged and be thankful um, that here at Community at, at Heritage Grace Community Church, we have a, a church that is first and foremost biblical, a church that is built on the foundation of God's Word, a church that is Christ-centered and gospel-centered. And brothers and sisters, I mean it when you hear me say that I am thankful to God that my family is here at this church. Um, it's a grace. It's the, it's the grace of God that has brought us here for so many different reasons, for graces that I didn't even have time to get to. But um, I thank God for that, that I'm here. Um, but, but brothers and sisters, as great as the foundation is, uh, we are in need of perseverance. We are in need of perseverance. May we not rest in our laurels, as they say, uh, but continue to strive in the working out of our salvations with fear and trembling um, together. Work out our salvations together in fear and trembling. And may the Lord himself provide for us the grace that we're going to need to remain unified in these things um, for, for however many years the Lord gives us that we might bring our Savior much glory and that we may bring together many souls into the uh, image of Christ. That's our goal at Heritage Grace, to bring God glory and to bring people into the image of Christ and to, to help conform them into his image. So this is a unified task. We need to do it as a unified body and work together. And, and it's my privilege to serve you and to serve with you in this calling. And so let's pray together now and, and ask the Lord's blessing on this work that we have before us. Well, Father, Father, you know my heart. You know that I mean, Lord, that I am grateful to you for bringing me to Heritage Grace, Lord, that, that my family is here, that we are washed um, in the water of your word in this place, Lord, and you deserve all, all praise and all adoration for the grace that you have shown us. You have been more gracious to us than many churches, Lord, that there, you've revealed yourself to us more than you've revealed yourself to many, Lord. And, so, and for these things, we praise you and we thank you. Um, but Lord, we know that with whom much is given, much is required. And Lord, so I pray that you will help us to take all of the truth, all of the knowledge that we know about you, that we know about ourselves, that we know about the gospel, Lord, that we would take all of these things and, and and turn them into good works, as, as the Word of God says, that we would have been saved and would work out our salvations for the reason that we were saved, for all of the good works that you've placed before us and, and predestined for us, Lord. So give us the grace to fulfill the callings that are our salvations. Help us to live lives worthy of your glorious gospel. We ask for your help, Lord. We've, we've all proven to ourselves, Lord, that we cannot do it on our own. We need your grace, Lord, so please shower your church with this grace. We praise you. Bless our fellowship today. May it be sweet. May it edify us in the way that your graces are intended to edify your church. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.